Because it's been several weeks since we have studied the book of Romans together, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Romans chapter 1 and let me read the section we're currently in. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Romans 1, 1 to 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far, we have covered verses 1 to 15 in our study of the book of Romans. And we come now to the end of Paul's introductory remarks to these Roman believers in verses 16 and 17. And I simply can't communicate in words to you the importance of these two verses to the whole of Paul's argument in this epistle, or frankly, for the whole of his theology itself. Indeed, these verses were so cataclysmic in the life of Martin Luther, the great German reformer, they became the fuse verses which lit off the reformation of the church. 
which allowed in the marvelous plan of God the recovery of the true nature of the gospel message from the Roman Catholic dark ages of works righteousness. Listen to Luther himself describe his spiritual discovery which God used to spark the later Protestants or Protestants to split with Rome's defective teaching of salvation. Quote, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. In it the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that He was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the Gospel, and also by the Gospel threatening us, us with His righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, continually, upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, Meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he, through, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. 
I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. End quote. And with that, the Protestant Reformation was, at least in seed form, born. That experience of Luther, at least on a human level, is how important this text is for us. For without his understanding and its after effects, frankly, you and I wouldn't even be sitting here worshiping as Protestants today nearly 500 years later. But even more important than that, however, is the divine side of things. This text is monumentally important, not simply because God chose to use Martin Luther in such a far-reaching way, but its importance is seen most clearly in the fact that this is the powerful, transforming Word of God to all sinful men and women. God is speaking to all of us through His glorious Word, not just Martin Luther. Paul, the Apostle, says here that the righteousness of God is revealed. God has stooped down to show us that we could never have understood anything about Him to say nothing of His glorious salvation apart from His gracious revelation. And this is why Paul wants to end this introduction to the book of Romans in this way. God desires to reveal something to us. And that something is His righteousness. And that righteousness does something, He says. And it comes to believers through faith and we see it for what it really is, that righteousness. We see the power of God at work in the very act of the life of salvation, our lives of salvation. This is what Paul wants the Romans to know. This is what God wants us to know as he introduces to them and to us God's gospel, the gospel of God. And he says what he says. In this introduction, and especially here in verses 16 and 17, as a springboard to lay out in detail throughout the rest of the letter the doctrine of salvation. Now, how can we best understand the flow of Paul's thought here in verses 16 to 17? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that the point of the verses has to do with the gospel. Because Paul has been endeavoring to say, according to verse 15, that he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. You see it there? So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he uses a connector word in the Greek text to link verse 15 with verse 16. The Greek word gar. It means for. I am eager, verse 15, to preach the gospel... Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So all that we are going to talk about has explicitly to do with the gospel. 
And what he goes on to describe in verses 16 and 17 are the implications of this gospel. And I see two primary implications in these verses, and that's our outline. The two implications of the gospel are, number one, it is the power of God, verse 16a. It is the power of God. And secondly, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's verse 17a. These are huge implications for the gospel. Huge implications of the gospel. These are what, beloved, make the difference between life and death. That's what Luther discovered. That's what God brought to him. It's what separates someone from heaven or hell. To understand the implication of verse 17 is to understand the fact that Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, whereas in the very next verse, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what I mean about the implicative difference between heaven and hell. In one verse, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in the next verse, 18, the wrath of God is revealed. In one verse, God's righteousness is revealed to the righteous who live by faith. And in the next verse, God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteous who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. You see, to understand verses 16 and 17 is to rejoice in God's power. And therefore to avoid being the subject of verses 18 and following. You see verses 16 and 17 give us everything to hope for. Verse 18 says the wrath of God will give everything to everyone who is unrighteous. Everything to mourn for. You must then do your utmost to understand verses 16 and 17. And that's why we're going to camp out here. I tried to get both verses in this morning. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. That's okay. I checked with a few others. There are a few notable, visible Christian leaders who have spent 6, 8, 12, 15 sermons in just these two verses. So I'm in pretty good company. And I think that's what Martin Luther himself meant when he said that day and night he was meditating on Romans 1.17, continually knocking on St. Paul's door in order to see what he might mean. We can't do a cursory look at this. We cannot. It's far too important. And so we will not. Let's look at the first thing. Paul says when he discusses the gospel in verse 16. And it is, as I said, our outline point, the power of God. The power of God for salvation. Notice what he emphatically says. This is why I'm not ashamed of it. But what does he mean? What does he mean? He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Seems as though it comes out of the blue. Not ashamed? What is there to be ashamed of? He says in two verses, back to back, I'm both eager and I'm not ashamed because he knows what the gospel can do. 
He's experienced it in his own life, and he's seen it in the lives of others. The power of God. Power here is dunamis, from which we derive our English word dynamic. And that's what he means. The power of God for salvation has a dynamic force. But what kind of dynamic force, Paul? Look at verse 16 again. For salvation. That's the kind of gospel dynamic salvation has. It's for deliverance. That's what the word salvation means. Deliverance. Oh, this is that great word group, sozo. It means salvation. That's where theologians come up with that particular discipline within theology called soteriology. Soteria, sozo, soter. It means salvation. It means deliverance. Deliverance from our bondage to sin. We're delivered from guilt and shame and ultimate destruction. That's what he's saying. How can I be ashamed of that when that's what it's done for me? And how can I be ashamed of that when that's what it's done for others for whom I've seen it work in their lives? It is the power of God for salvation. Is that your view of God's salvation? Is that your view? Is that what you've experienced? You're headed for an eternal hell unless God intervenes. Your life is in need of repair from years of sinful choices. You don't have any power to fight sin. And therefore, you need desperately what you don't have. And that is the power of someone outside of you and your world to deliver you from your sin. And this, beloved, can come only from the power of Almighty God. Nobody can be ashamed of that. And Paul the preacher says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the power of God. Look at what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, this is a marvelous attestation of what he's saying here in Romans 1:16. 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross, salvation, Jesus Christ's atonement, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, delivered, it is what? The power of God. It is the power of God. It's God's power. To those who don't believe, it's folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. That's why he says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love that. Christ, the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to break through sin. And it's dominion. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 4. 
Even as he came to the Corinthians, he said, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, this salvation with God's power brings about salvation accomplished. And that means it is effectual. It's a great word. It is effectual. It accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Don't ever let anyone tell you in Christian theology that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes salvation possible. It doesn't just make salvation possible. It makes it actual. It actually happens. It secures salvation. It brings it about. God brought it to fruition. He completed it in the cross of Christ. That's the power of God. That's what you and I need to say when we know we have a witnessing opportunity. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of what God has done in my life through the truth of His Word that has brought about salvation in me as are other wonderful believers who are attesting to the same thing all the way back to this beloved Martin Luther and even millennia before. It is the power of God. Paul himself. I'm not ashamed of that. It's the power of God for salvation. And notice the next phrase. Salvation to everyone who believes. Now this is, this is phenomenal. There is both universality and particularity here. Or maybe we should say it like this. God's power secures the salvation of every single one of those who will ever believe. Isn't that glorious? God's salvation Power secures the redemption of every single one of those persons who will ever believe. No wonder Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead, and with it, God's power to effectually bring the message of that very good news to my hell-bound state is not just for me only, but for everyone who believes. And by the way, believes, you see it there in verse 16, believes has as its verbal idea present tense continuous action. It's not just a one-time believing. It's not just a one-time believing act in Jesus Christ. It means a continual believing. And that means that the power of God brings salvation to everyone who is then characterized as being in the state or the category of continual believing ones. By the way, this also may comport very well 
with what I told you about who the you are in verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You remember we said, uh, what is the sense of that? Because if he's writing to believers who are in the church at Rome, why is he eager to preach the gospel to believers? Why do we need to preach the gospel to believers? Aren't we supposed to preach the gospel to unbelievers? Believers have already received the gospel. So why is he saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are already believers, if that's what he means? Well, he's endeavoring to teach the Roman believers, that is, those who have already been believers in Christ at their initial point of salvation with this glorious truth, because we need the gospel to be preached to us as believers every day also. Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book in which he had some profound statements that affirmed that, and I absolutely agree with him. The believers in Jesus Christ need the gospel to be preached to us every day. The essence of the gospel, the realities of the gospel, the atonement of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We need to be reminded of that every day, what Christ did for us. And I think he's seeking to show the Roman Christians that no matter what happens, that when they go out for the sake of the name, do you see that in verse 5? Paul says, For whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's gospel preaching, that's missionary zeal, that's planning and establishing churches. It's all of the above. And they, like Paul, do not need to be ashamed of anything. He says, in effect, yes, I'm eager to preach the gospel to unbelievers for their initial salvation, but I'm also unashamed to tell believers about the salvation they already possess in Christ because they need to understand that it is the power of God for salvation to absolutely everyone who believes and who keeps on believing. Now, you said, Lance that there were a universal dimension and a particular dimension to it. And I did, and I've already alluded to it. The particular dimension is restricted, as he says here, to the believing ones. Notice, Paul could have very easily said here in verse 16, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, period. And we might have concluded... Had this been the only statement we've heard from Paul, the only other statements that we might hear from Paul in other places, other epistles, other writings, that he was a universalist. That the power of God for salvation is for everyone. Because there's no qualifier here. There's no restriction here. But that's not what he does. He says it is to everyone who believes. And that is why I state to you emphatically that there is no atonement of Christ by Christ, no sacrifice, no propitiation, no substitution for someone who doesn't believe the gospel. There isn't. There is no one in hell who willingly believes and therefore there is no sacrifice by Christ for them. His atonement does not secure their redemption. If there were a satisfaction of divine wrath on their behalf, they would not be called unbelievers, but believers. 
But since according to Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, including the sin of unbelief, and according to John 3.18, unbelievers are said to be condemned already for their unbelief, the power of salvation by God is not effectual for those who aren't believers. And that is why we call it, Reformed theologians call it, particular redemption. It is particular in its scope, in its design. Or, if you prefer to put it in Paul's own explicit words here in Romans 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if he wanted to, he could have said, and it isn't for those who don't believe. You say, but wait a minute. It says everyone who believes. Yes, it does. But grammatically, the everyone is restricted to the phrase who believes. Everyone who believes. It's defined, the everyone, by the believing ones. This is not my language, but Paul's own words. You say, but I thought you said there is universality here as well. There is, and I rejoice exceedingly in it. I rejoice exceedingly in it. Notice what Paul says again. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice this. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's Paul's universal application of the powerful salvation of Jesus Christ as to its offer. There it is. It isn't merely restricted to the Jews. It isn't just something that God is doing in saving the Jews. Yes, it's first for them. The gospel had its germ form to the Jew first. That's why Jesus said, I have only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember? And we were reminded by our dear brother, Dr. Joel Beakey, last Sunday night, that even the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, said, yes, but even... Gentiles might be able to receive some crumbs that fall off of the table. Yes, it started first with the Jews, but in God's marvelous, redemptive plan of salvation, it included not just Jews only, but also for those who are not just Jews, Greeks, or Gentiles, if you will. And that's why he says... In verse 13, I I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, non-Jews. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Now he's even slicing the difference of who all the Gentiles are, to the wise and to the foolish. This is not just some kind of Jewish salvation in Christ. It's going beyond that. There were only two classes or groupings or categories which Paul could possibly cite. And he says that this power of God to redeem men is first preached to the Jews. And then this gospel pervades outside even the Jewish nation. And it captures the hearts of Gentiles also. And he says that's what I want to do. 
And he tells the Roman believers, I want to teach it to you, and then I want you to launch me as a missionary all the way westward to Spain, because this is my message and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. This offering of the gospel then has a, has a universal aspect. The good news of Christ is to be preached to all men. And those who see it for what it truly is, the good news will do so because of the power of God. You can't, you can't understand the gospel. You can't receive the gospel. You can't obey the gospel. You cannot respond to the gospel unless you are first touched by the power of God. The power of God. And anyone who has knows, like Paul, that they will not be ashamed and will by that same power believe and continually believe and thereby prove all along that the atonement of Christ has been planned from eternity past to actually secure you and me and all other believers from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And there's your universality. And that's why in the book of Revelation it says there's, there's a group of people that no one can count. It's like the sand of the seashore. Oh, this universal offer. It's like Isaiah 55. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and drink freely. But it's only effectual to everyone who believes. You say, well, is that the way it really was? Yes. Look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 11. I want to show you this. This is, this is so true. It's first to the Greek, yes, and then to the Gentiles. Notice this. Even from the earliest part of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. This is the sense of Romans 1.16. It has to be. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, that's, that's where it all began, all of that region, heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. Now, you would assume that one of their initial reactions to that would be, oh, this is bad. This is bad. This is not good. Why? Because salvation is of the Jews. They would be resistant to this, folks. This is not a good thing. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. You see, I told you. I cheated. I read a little bit further. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm kosher. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. And if it's a voice from heaven and it's really God, it has changed and you better get along with the plan. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction 
No distinction between Jews and non-Jews. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I love verse 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? God has a plan, and it includes not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has a plan, beloved. And that plan from eternity past includes not just a Jewish salvation of those whom God says they are my people, but also Gentiles as well. And they're saying, well, we rejoice in it then that God has granted, by the way, don't miss that, God grants repentance that leads to life. You want another one? John 11. You remember Caiaphas? A very interesting way for Truth to be spoken through Caiaphas, John eleven forty nine. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, this bickering and the plot to kill Jesus, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Notice this, folks, very important. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Oh, it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the nation of Israel. And I think that may very well be a perfect parallel passage for 1 John 2. To and not for our sins only, John the Jew, the apostle says, but also for those of the whole world. It's also for the unbelieving Gentiles. God will reach out and He'll save even the Gentiles of the unbelieving world. He'll, he'll pluck them out of the unbelieving world in His sovereign plan and He will bring them to His kingdom safely. Now, let me ask you as we close. You praise God for this. I hope you should because most of you in here are not Jews. You, like me, be Gentile. And that plan included our own salvation. You praise God for the salvation plan which he has masterminded? Do you acknowledge that only those who believe will be delivered from their sin? Do you believe and are you in a continual state of believing in Jesus Christ? That's the only kind of biblical believing there truly is. 
You see, if you say yes to these truths, then you give evidence that you're not ashamed of the gospel. That you've embraced the gospel. And that you want to spread the gospel far and wide. You're like one of those candidates that he talks about in verse 5. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. You're like one of those that wants to take Bibles around the world. You're like one of, one of those who wants to take the gospel message around the world. In whatever ways God designs, you've been blessed. And even as believers, you hear this, this gospel that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you say, I'm one of those believers. And you're reminded again of the great power of God, His salvation plan. And it included the plan that included you and me as Gentiles. And there's no other response but praise God. Praise God. Praise you, Father. But if not, I plead with you. I plead with you. I alluded to John chapter 3. Don't, don't. Respond this way, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Don't be ashamed. Repent now. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in His death and His burial and His resurrection from the dead in the great and grand power of God. And as Martin Luther said, as he saw Romans 1.17, that place in Paul that was truly the gate to paradise. Come to paradise today, right now. Let's pray together. Oh God, our sovereign God, we can only believe, we can only believe If you grant us this power, if you break through by your dynamic force and deliver us, O God, do that work even now. Shatter hard hearts. Bring lowly, mournful creatures to their knees and then lift them up encourage their souls set them as 
wind sails so that they may be unashamed as they see the power of Yourself at work in their lives. Oh God, I pray. I pray that none of us, even as believers, continually trusting in Jesus Christ, would tire of hearing this powerful gospel and preaching it to ourselves every day. May we respond and thank you for the atonement that has been secured to everyone who believes. Thank you for what you have done, not only in our lives, but in the life of this man, Luther, so that his and our lives and others, even this morning, could be shown the gateway to paradise. We glorify Christ in His name. Amen.